you think about, I am a person whose job, role, function in a building is one to help the young people in front of me learn two things, new stuff and how to do stuff, <laughs> right? Like, let's be real simple here. Then I'm a leader of that, right? If I'm the teacher, it centers me and my knowledge. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. If it sounds different today, that's because I am recording this from our Boston office and I don't have the microphone that I normally have at home, so I hope it sounds okay, but it is nice to be in, uh, at Elevation's headquarters here on this beautiful morning. Before we introduce this episode's guests, I want to take a moment to remind you that the interview you're about to hear is just one part of our exploration of this topic. You'll find multimedia resources, including a transcript of this episode, accompanying blog posts, videos, collaboration opportunities, and much more on our learning community. Visit bit.ly slash getmlresources for more information. You can also just go ahead and search for Elevation Education and you'll find us as well. Our community resources are always free and available when you need them. Here are some of the topics we will cover on this week's episode with our guest. How can concepts like teacher identity and learning leader transform how educators show up in the classroom? What is the difference between directive and generative scaffolding, and how can one be significantly more constructive for English learners? What roles can deep culture, identity, and instructional power play in crafting more equitable teaching styles? We discuss these questions in all things equity and more with Tanji Reed Marshall, who is highly recommended by our friend Jeff Zwiers from Stanford Graduate School of Education and best known by our audience as writing a tremendous amount of incredible resources on academic language. A little more about our guest, Dr. Tanji Reed Marshall is the director of P to 12 practice leading EdTrust's equity and motion assignment analysis work. Prior to joining EdTrust, Tanji worked in the Office of Academic Programs at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University to prepare the School of Education's accreditation with the Council of Accreditation of Educator Preparation. Before that, she supported prospective secondary English teachers who were working to obtain licensure through the School of Education. Prior to joining Virginia Tech, Tanji worked as a district-level literacy specialist at Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools in North Carolina, where she supported middle schools across the district to refine their literacy practices. She also worked to prepare the district as they transitioned to Common Core standards. Additionally, as a Title I literacy coach, Tanji worked with targeted schools to improve literacy instruction for traditionally underserved students. Her career also includes elementary and middle school classroom teaching in North Carolina and New Jersey, which has allowed her opportunities to consult with school districts across the country to refine and focus teacher practice on literacy and to strengthen student achievement with an emphasis on traditionally underserved students. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Tanji. It is about all things equity, and she has a way of putting those sentiments and resources and strategies that somehow seem ambiguous into action. So enjoy our conversation with Dr. Tanji Reed Marshall. Tanji Reed Marshall, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve, for having me. I'm so excited to be here and I look forward to what I think is going to be a necessary conversation. I'm looking forward to um, just digging right in and, and enjoying the time to really share about this topic. Same here. And I should say that you, uh, Jeff Sweers, probably almost two years ago now, uh, recommended that I contact you. And it took me way too long to do that. So, Jeff, if you're listening, I finally brought Tangerine Marshall on, and I'm happy that she agreed to join us. That's right. And, Jeff, if you are listening, hello, and thank you so much for the recommendation. I have followed your work, and it gives me joy and helps me learn and become better at what I do. Great. All right. So, now that we have that, uh, that appreciation out of the way, um, I want to start by t addressing some of the terminology that you think is important to change or to apply. Um, you use the term teacher identity as a way to foster the notion of cultural responsiveness. So let's start there. Tell us, tell us what you mean by that expression or that terminology and why it's so important. Yeah, I think, think um, this idea of 
cultural responsiveness. We have to do more. We have to challenge and push more. And I say that because if you follow the trajectory of where the concept came from, it started in the late 70s. And here we are in 2022, still asking Mm -hmm. questions about it. Um, And the identity of the teacher rests at the crux of whether they will or will not lean into being knowledgeable enough or willing to be knowledgeable enough about themselves, where they stand on who they are as a human, right? And then how they bring their humanity into the classroom to interact and help students learn. And particularly students who do not look like them. We're talking about cultural responsiveness. And let's just be frank. We are talking about that relative to black and brown children, right? So when we talk about culturally responsive, the question is, how can I use this idea to teach a particular population of students? Mm-hmm. And that population is not white children, right? And so what I, will, what I will say is education already is responsive to a culture. It's responsive to a particular kind of culture that is not named. And so when we don't name the dynamics of the culture around which education is built and meant to um, foster, having to name culture really feels disjointed. Mm -hmm. And so we keep looking for these things to help us figure out how to be responsive to a culture when we already are, we just haven't named it. Yeah. And I appreciate you framing it that way. I think, I, you know, we, we were just talking right before I click the record button. I, I've said a lot of times, anybody who's, who's listened, I think over the last year that there's this echo chamber of which I have been a part and the podcast has been a part of cultural responsive teaching, right? We talk about, it feels like it comes up in every single conversation that I have, but it's, it's, it just doesn't go deep enough, which is, I think, uh, one of the things I'm hoping to get to today. So I really appreciate you first framing it that way. Going back to the, the whole terminology piece, the other thing that I love, and this is probably because of my bias is having been a teacher for so long and not really liking that term. Uh, mm-hmm. until, uh, even when I first started, I just never really liked it. Instructor, teacher. And you've advocated for using the term learning leader. Um, why? Does, does it really make a difference? It makes a difference to me. It made a difference to me when I was in the, in the classroom, um, because if you center the teacher, you center the adult. If you center the learner, like if you're, if you are a leader of learning, you're centering the students. We keep pushing culturally responsive education and practices at such a sort of rudimentary level that we're not actually getting down to the kid. So if we really are thinking about leaders of learning, then it pushes us past this knee jerk of let me put all these tools in my toolbox so Mm -hmm. I can pull out the ones that are quote unquote culturally responsive and I can leave all the other ones in there that are not. And my challenge and my question is, which one of those pedagogical structures are not culturally responsive? And so if you think about, I am a person whose job, role, function in a building is one to help the young people in front of me learn two things, new stuff and how to do stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like this is real simple here. Then I'm a leader of that, right? If I'm the teacher, it centers me and my knowledge because the teacher is the thing, right? The ER, right? Is really hearkening back to the verb in front of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you know, I'm tempted to go down uh, what would be, I think a giant rabbit hole of a lot of the different things that people are trying now, personalized learning, blended learning, competency-based learning, et cetera, to be able to get at some of this uh, personalized learning. So you're not a teacher, but you're actually a leader of learning. You're more of a coach. I'm not going to do that, but I'd invite you at any time to kind of bring that up over the course of the conversation. But I think if I go that way, I'm going to, I'm going to lose track of what it is that we're trying to talk about here. Okay. Um, so, so 
that there's the terminology piece, and I'm glad we just talked about those two things. And then you have this framework as well that I think is also kind of helpful. It's a four component framework that deals with knowledge of self as an educator, which we've kind of alluded to a little bit, of students, of content and standards. And I guess you just talked about new stuff and how to do stuff. I guess that maybe fits in there in some way. Right. <laughs> but uh, I found it really interesting. And I know it's kind of a large question, but if you could give people kind of like an idea of how that, what that, what that is and how it works and how it functions within this kind of space of what we're talking about and cultural responsiveness. Mm-hmm. I think the, the four pieces of it, one is about knowledge. knowledge. What knowledge do you need to have? You need as an educator knowledge of who you are and you have got to be, as attuned as you as you need as you can be, um, we don't always know everything about ourselves, particularly when it comes to interacting with other people. But you have got to be so knowledgeable about who you are as a person, your biases, your learning trajectory, your learning history, your cultural legacies, your cultural inheritances, all of your prejudices. You must know who that is, and then you must take all of that and understand how it functions. How does it function, right? And then the functionality of it attaches to how do you then engage it? What are the ways that you are engaging it that produce outcomes, positive outcomes for students? But then how are you engaging your knowledge of self, the function of yourself in ways that engage for negative production from students? So it's an engagement, it is a knowledge, it is a function, it's an engagement, and it is a production. You must also know, must also have that framework in your head regarding your students. Who are they? How does who they are function as an engagement for production, right? How does the content, your discipline, if I'm teaching science, what science am I teaching? Am I teaching biology? Am I teaching chemistry? Am I teaching physics? What are the domains of knowledge within each of the pieces that I'm teaching? Right, that's the stuff, right? How does it function? How do I use it to engage and produce what the domains require? So if I'm in biology, there's a certain kind of production of my knowledge and skill that I should be able to see. But I can't do all of that absent knowledge of myself, absent knowledge of my students, right? And then the standards. Standards matter. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live. I don't care what you do. Standards matter to everybody. And I can prove it because every time I ask a person, so tell me. If you go to a restaurant and when you walk in the door, it has a C rating, are you going to stay there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might, but you might not. Yep. And if it has a D rating, you're definitely not going to stay. And that so, seems to be something that's getting what we're getting more and more picky about standards as, as all these reviews and, you know, people kind of are able to contribute to that market. So that's a good point. Right. So, so, and the notion that a parent, should send their child to a place called school where they're going to learn and they're not meant to aspire to something of a high level. And standards are the floor. They're not the ceiling. They're the baseline. Mm-hmm. You know, you they're, the they're the baseline of what students should be required to do. I mean, I would like to know, I want someone to, to like email me and tell me when you read your ELA standards, which one is the bad one? Like which one in all the ELA should a third grader not be able to do? Mm-hmm. I don't know. No one's done it yet. So, yeah. but that's yeah. the framework, like really, really getting clear on the knowledge, right? The knowledge and how does the knowledge function and how do you take the knowledge and the function and use it as a tool for engagement so that the production is both positive, high level, um, and what it should be that, that helps the student. It's about the learner. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interconnected web that you're describing. And even like, as you started to tie, I was tempted to interrupt you. And you just, when you started to talk about what the teacher or what the uh, learning leader needs to be able to do, I mean, it's, <laughs> I asked myself how many teachers that I know, including myself, were able to do that were able to really take a good hard look at themselves, understand, go back enough far enough in their history to understand kind of how their 
values and their biases and whatever else might affect the way that they're teaching. And right. if you don't get to that step, you can't get to all the other steps. So it begs the question, are we going deep enough in teacher preparation and professional development, et cetera, et cetera, particularly as we talk about um, black and brown children and multilingual learners that we're obviously focusing on here mm -hmm. um, at Elevation and on the podcast. And I want to kind of like try to segue that into my next question, um, because when we talked last time, we had a really great conversation and I thought a lot about it um, and I was kind of putting my my teacher hat on. I was I taught high school for, for a long time. And one thing that really resonated with me um, as a teacher, especially when I first started teaching. So I taught high school Spanish. I was like thrown into it. It's a long story yep. that I won't get into now. It was a total accident. I really was 22, probably had no business being a high school teacher. Um, what 22 year old should teach high school? <laughs> like, maybe we should stop and ask that question. I was barely 22. Not like, me. right. Like there should be like, there should definitely be like a 10 year difference in age yeah. between the kids you teach and your age. Yeah. There were, you know, the, some that. of them, some <laughs> of them were 19 years. It was, it was, it was unbelievably, uh, it was just what a, what a crazy experience. And, and if I told you the circumstances under which I started to say that they were traumatic for the students, because they had just oh. experienced the loss would be would be an understatement. But anyway, another story for another time. But my first <laughs> inclination, even as I looked around at these students who were traumatized and I did not have the training that I needed to be a teacher. And I think a lot of teachers look at this, even if they do have training, by the way, that start. I said to myself, wow, what did my teachers do? I should just I'm going to just do that, you know, because it didn't matter if it was effective. I can think of one of my high school Spanish teachers who is wonderful, and I can think of three of them who did what they needed to do, right? I didn't learn much Spanish, in the, but, I, but I defaulted to that, um, and it wasn't effective. And so you said just now educators need to go back far enough into their own learning, the histories of who they are, and bring, bring it forward into their decision-making processes about the kids in front of them. I, I, I did not do that when I first started. It took, probably took me 10 years to start doing that. And, and I don't think I did it to the extent that you've described it. So first, wh why is this so important, especially, and you alluded to it earlier, but thinking about like my situation and the situation of many teachers coming in who I kind of exemplify, why is that so important, uh, that knowledge of self when it comes especially to working with the students that we're talking about, with black, brown children, multi multilingual learners, et cetera? Yeah, it matters because that's where your power-laden decision-making processes rest. They're resting in, I call like our deep culture, right? Like our shallow, our deep culture, the culture that lies under the table that we don't see. We talk about culture in the sort of shallow area, food, fun, flags. We live culture in the deep spaces, in the recesses of who we are. If I grew up, in a town, in a family, at a school, where students whose first language was their grandmother's language who wasn't English, and that was devalued, and English equated to intellect, I'm carrying that with me. Mm -hmm. But if I don't know it, I might not know I'm carrying it with me. So I need to be able to really go back and look at who was in the schools I went to? Where, who were the teachers in the schools I attended? What were the underlying factors? How did they let me know who, value, who they valued in school? I've done this exercise with educators and it is profound when they have to go back and say, oh my gosh, I was part of X group and we knew who mattered, right? If you went to a school, lived in a home, lived in a town where while you may not have heard overt racist comments, you understood that there was a difference between black people, brown people, indigenous people and yep. white people sort of, you know, woven into the water. That's coming with you. You know, I tell teachers, I tell building leaders, uh, district leaders, you know, people around the country. Who you are is coming with you everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. You don't leave yourself like, like, you know what? I'm going to leave that in the trunk because it's really bad. No, you take the whole you with you. And if you are not in tune to who you are and the triggers that 
um, bring up the culture under the table of who you are, the dynamic of your identity, it is showing up. It is showing up in your grading. It is showing up in your interactions. It is showing up in who you call on in the classroom. Mm -hmm. If you think a student whose first language is from a devalued country, let me talk about the language. How about where the student even comes from? If you think that student comes from a country or a city or a culture and that is devalued, you will not call on that child because you don't think they can. And if you do call on that child, you won't give them wait time because mm -hmm. you don't think their brain is processing what you're asking. So you're going to jump in and save them. You're going to give them watered down work. You're going to misgrade them. You might overgrade them because you think you're doing them a favor. Yeah. Yeah. When in fact you need to grade them accurately to help them learn. Right. So you're leading learning. Mm -hmm. You are going to enact pedagogical structures in your classrooms that do not allow the student to level up their education to get to high levels of literacy. I'm thinking of Zaretta Hammond and Alfred Tatum, who uses those two languages, mm -hmm. right? Those two structures of language. They're not leveling up. They're not getting to high levels of literacy. If you don't know, that's why it's so important. Yeah. And you just laid it out really, really well. And I say this frequently, but I'm not going to try to like digest that. Go back, listen to the last three or four <laughs> minutes, because I think that's really powerful. And uh, sometimes I try to unpack things and I'm not going to try to unpack that. I'm going to ask a follow-up question though, because I think, I think this is the crucial part, right? Like one thing to lay this all out. Another thing to understand that there are many teachers walking around and doing work right now and best of intentions that, that fall under the category that you're talking about that need help with this, that need to become leaders of learning, that need to understand the baggage that they're carrying. So this is the uncomfortable question. How do we convince educators, administrators, school leaders, et cetera, um, that this is a, a, a valuable exercise to go through um, and and do it with with kind of fidelity rather than going through the motions? Because you see this all the time. Nobody's going to say that, yes, I am 100% biased against this group of students that I'm working with, and I'm not calling them for that reason. But people know that, right? And you see that in different ways uh, that are, are usually expressed privately in internet searches or whatever the case may be. So uh, how do you do it? What, I mean, how do we get there? Mm -hmm. The question is, do you value students? That's the question. The question is, do you value every single individual child whose parent or caregiver or guardian has turned them over to you for a six hour stint to help them learn? Is, let me ask you a, a really difficult like mm -hmm. question. Is the answer to that question in some cases or in more cases than we'd like? No. Yes. In your opinion? Yes. And you know how you look, the data shows it to you. You gotta believe me, go look at our data from state to state to state to state. We have a belief gap in this country that is built upon an educational DNA about who deserves to be educated to what degree and for what purpose, right? You can go back, Thomas Jefferson started us on this path with a two, with a sort of bifurcated system, a two track system. We're gonna educate the laborers and we're gonna educate mm -hmm. the learned. He started that, that is before that, right? He started that tracking system that is inside the educational DNA of our country, predicated on certain people deserve to be taught in such a way that will, that will position them for leadership. Other people deserve to be educated a different way to position them to be the servants of the leaders. Rooted and grounded in that, 
is the belief system of the racial underpinnings of our country. And we cannot mistake it. My husband and I were just talking. You might not feel your DNA, but it's going to show up. Yeah, yeah. Your, your DNA shows up. And so the DNA of who we are as a nation and what we believe about who should be educated and for what purpose is showing up. Look at Massachusetts. Massachusetts has among the highest uh, scores on NAEP in the country. They rank number one. They kick everybody's rear end until you kick the tires and you, you lift up the car hood and you really get down underneath that hood and you see who they're number one for and who they are not number one for. Mm-hmm. The state of Massachusetts outranks entire countries on the PISA assessment for certain children. Okay, so we've got to get down to naming who we are from a DNA perspective, from an educational lens. And so, yeah, I will tell you the answer to your very challenging question is an outright yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think we need to start there. I mean, it's, but it's, it's just, it's just such an uncomfortable thing. And I think that's what we need to get comfortable with is that discomfort, that that discomfort. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. I, I, I want (laughs) to, I want to move forward, even though I don't, um, uh, you know, when we think about, you talked about where someone's from and you said, don't even, you know, the country forget the language, but let's, let's kind of go back into language and multilingualism and you know the framework that most well that a lot of educators look at multilingualism through or <clears throat> teaching multilingual learners is english acquisition right that's like what people are thinking about i think most people who don't have a lot of experience working with multilingual learners are definitely think well we need to get them to learn english that's the most important thing it seem it's a trend that at least seems to be kind of slowing down, at least with listeners of this podcast. And again, in the echo chamber that we function, I think people would say that's not the case. Everybody's a teacher of language. Um, I have a feeling that you'd push back a little bit, which I really appreciate. It's still quite prevalent though. I mean, I still work with many, many teachers um, and know them. And I, it's not so long that I was outside of the classroom. And I know that if I asked a math teacher who's been at my school for 20 years and all of a sudden has an influx of multilingual learners, and he's got to deal with five of them, deal with, I'm using that word specifically, mm-hmm. he's going to say, I'm a content teacher. I, what am I doing? I can't teach these kids language. Even if that person is uh, uh, wants to, right? It, it, which is another question, maybe not equipped to do it. So my question is, how do we address that problem? The problem that, and also I should, I should back up a little bit, that I think most teachers would not admit publicly that they're not teachers of language. They wouldn't say, it's not my responsibility to work with these English learners. But again, that's like, I think a bit of a secret that comes out in a private conversation. So how do we address that problem in a way that doesn't alienate well-meaning educators? Or to ask you another really kind of direct question, do we need to alienate them? Well, one thing I will say about well-meaningness I was taught by my dissertation chair when he would read my work. And I said, well, you know, my intention was blah, blah, blah with that word. He was, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and he would say it over and over. And I was like, Trevor, stop. Okay, I got it. Um, but the truth of the matter is teachers deserve to be trained. They deserve to be trained in order to be proficient in their content across a multiplicity of dimensions. If I am teaching math, the beauty of math is I don't care where you live. I don't care where you come from. One plus one is going to always equal two. Mm -hmm. Now, what I have to be able to do as a math teacher is understand the linguistic dynamics Uh, where you are, where you're from, that can help you understand the one plus one equals two. To do that, number one, let's go back. If you are from a place that didn't value, that, that that says English equals language, 
right? That, that language equals English. People mm-hmm. think language equals English. English is a part of language, right? So we have elevated the speaking of what we call English above all other frames of language. What we have to do is understand that English is a part of the language structure that people use to communicate. So from there, the question is, as a teacher, do I value people who have other languages, right? Across the world, being monolinguistic is not a good thing. We're the only country that says having more than one language is problematic. So that's a whole nother conversation. Yep, that right. Have, exactly. Right. That's a whole nother discussion. And so, but they need, they they need professional learning on how do we help? How do I make the connection between content and different languages spoken? Right. And how do I then understand that the, a, a language from an African country is as systematic and as valuable as the thing that we call English here in this country, right? So how do we do that? How do we stop people? And and you know what? Sometimes we put our efforts in other places that that we waste time. Um, Your belief about my language is an underlying factor, but you still need to know it. So as you are dealing with whether you like my language, whether you don't like my language, I'm just going to say, learn my learn pieces of how my language might operate. Mm-hmm. That includes students who come to classrooms with dialects of English, right? Who come like, so for instance, I knew a young man I was in, in, in my, one of my courses with, when I tell you this young man had the southernest of Southern <laughs> twangs from some way out in Virginia, but he was brilliant. And he said, every time I open my mouth, the first thing people do is chuckle Mm. because they're into what they hear. And he said, it takes them a while to get past his Southern twang down into the content. Why? Because it's a value system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I, I appreciate you mentioning the, the, the idea that all teachers deserve training to do what they're doing. And I want to, I want to ask you one follow-up question on professional learning, um, especially when it comes to merging language and content. What, I have a feeling your answer is going to be no, but I don't want to answer the question for you. Do we have what we need right now? Number one. And number two, what, what does that look like? Especially given that, and I, you know, I've kind I think it's important to bring up the pandemic and some of the opportunities that have brought up, especially when it came to like some districts are doing a really good job with asynchronous mm-hmm. professional learning and teachers really mm-hmm. loved it. And they were able to kind of access what they want. So I guess the second part of my question is how, how might that, how does that look to you, that professional learning? I know it's a kind of a broad question, um, but I think it's really important to talk about. Like, mm-hmm. is there, do you have something in mind that, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's the consultants coming to the district to talk about you know, whatever the case may be, but. Although, so one, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. No, we don't have what we need. And we know that we don't. Um, but on some level, the investment in the right kind of consultant mm-hmm. would do the, would, would be really important, right? Because it has to be ongoing. It has to be recursive. It has to be structured around intended outcomes. It ha- and, and not, not kid outcomes. We keep thinking about outcomes related to children. I'm talking about adult outcomes. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a really adult good point. Adult outcomes, right? And so what outcomes are we expecting that we're going to inspect so that what we, when we are helping teachers become the kind of multilingual leading instructional people, what does it look like, feel like, and what should I, as the building leader, be able to see? And how am I going to put in place the structures to support the production? Again, in knowledge, engage, knowledge, function, engage, and produce, right? The right kind of professional learning long-term, targeted, differentiated, right? We have to invest. It is an investment. And what I'm always struck by, Steve, is this is a profession 
supposedly centered on learning, but we tend to balk at having to invest dollars in learning. Right, right. It just seems, I don't know, a little backwards to me. Oh, yeah. Call me crazy. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. It's one of the reasons why I asked the question. Um, I, I think we, I think we're at a crossroads here. We have an opportunity, but again, that's a that's a bit of a another topic. But I wanted to kind of get your take on that. I appreciate you answering it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you talk about, uh, and that I think we discussed, or I read it, or I saw it in a video or something that you wrote, um, is the concept of scaffolding. Yeah. Um, generally yeah. perceived as positive. But you break it up into two categories, directive and generative. Describe the difference to us um, and tell us how it plays out, especially when working with multilingual learners. Mm -hmm. So scaffolding generally is seen as positive. The tipping scale is when the emphasis is on the scaffolding, more so on the core instruction. And what I've been reading, what I've been seeing, what I've been hearing is when teachers are given lessons with students, the first thing they go to is, what's the scaffold? Yeah. How do I scaffold this? And my, my immediate question to them is, well, focus on the core instruction first, right? Put your scaffold in your back pocket and hold on to it. And so when we are directive, we make assumptions about what students need to be scaffolded. When we are generative, We are standing back watching. We are gathering knowledge, seeing how that knowledge is functioning. Where's the engagement of it and the production, right? And so how can I ask the right question that's going to generate the knowledge, that's going to generate the kind of language production? When I am directive, I give the answers. I don't wait. Right. I, I, I step in because, again, let's go back to the belief. If I am privileging the spoken, the speaking of English, I assume if you do not do that thing, you have an intellectual deficit, which then means I have to scaffold everything for you mm. and give you all the answers. When or you really I, even know. Right. Before you know anything. And so what I help teachers understand is I want you to go ahead and do your lesson as it is designed at the grade level. Counterintuitive to many. Mind blowing. (laughs) Imagine you start at grade level and you watch, you watch, you listen to see, okay, where are you getting stuck? And you ask the question. I remember I was working with a student and we had a long passage and you know how writers can be very like really cutesy and they put like parentheses and drop in a positives yeah, yeah. and all the fun stuff that people who teach the language structure of English happen to love. Mm-hmm. But I found this young man was getting stuck in the appositives because he didn't know how to lift up the appositive and read around it. Right. And so instead of me, telling, going all the way back. I said, tell me where you're getting stuck. And he was able to unwind this. Oh, you mean this thing called an appositive is where you're getting stuck? He said, yeah. So we were able to help him lift it up, read around it. Now put it back. Tell me what's happening. That's generative. I'm generating more knowledge, more understanding. And in the meantime, deepening his skill. This goes right back to the conversation we were having at the very beginning about the difference between a teacher and a learning leader. And and what I love about it is it what you're talking about is it it gives teachers the ability to really explore their craft, which is what you're talking about, observing, understanding who these students are before you take these prescriptive or directive measures and then applying what you need to apply. And that also brings us back to training. Right. That's not something that comes. You're not 22 years old like me walking into a classroom and doing that. You're going back to what your what your experience is, no matter what it is. So Mm -hmm. many connections here, um, Mm -hmm. which I really, really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I want to kind of as we begin to wrap up, um, you have a great like a really great short video on instructional power on YouTube that I probably watched (laughs) 10 times. Oh. 
the the whole thing is super inspirational. I'll rec- recommend that everybody watch it. I will link to it um, on the show notes and on the blog post as well. Um, but one thing that you said really resonated with me, um, and you said love them enough to let them struggle, and we've hear, heard parts of that throughout this conversation. That goes against that that tendency to scaffold so heavily that students um, don't have to do anything to 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 that will help them learn. So I don't. That's more of a statement than a question. I'd love for you to respond to. But if I was to form a question around that, is how do we strike that balance, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a, and I know the well-meaning is a word that we all we all struggle with. But there are certainly teachers out there who suffer from that. I just want to help my students, and so they over scaffold, or they get them to they get them to a point where they're never experiencing that productive struggle for fear of having them really struggle and completely fall off the map. So how do we do that? How do we love them enough? to let them struggle and show them that we're doing that as well. Yeah. What I will say is the, the willingness, because this is willingness to allow students to get in there and grapple with their work is a sign of your belief system regarding their intellectual capacity. Right? You want to watch and figure out how to do this? Go watch a sports coach. That coach, it does one of the first things that coach does is watch. And they do not rescue that their 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 athlete. They will like they what they will do is they will stop. They will engage in conversation. They will help them realize what they need to do and they'll send them back off to do it again. We seem to think it is okay to build skill and capacity in the sports and in the arts. Academic struggle, we seem to think should never happen. If you are unwilling, the only time you rescue a kid or you're rescuing children over, not the only time, but when you're doing that as a pattern, as a course of patterns, that stems to how much do you know about yourself regarding your mm-hmm. belief systems? And I, my son is a perfect example. He was taking French and he said, mom, you know, I raise my hand in French. And every time I raise my hand to answer a question, my teacher jumps in and gives the answer. I said, Robert, let me tell you what's going on. Your teacher is calling on you, but inherently does not believe, you know, the answer. And so they are not going to, in their mind, waste classroom time while you think. Mm. So when we are using our instructional power, meaning those decisions late, you know, crafted around our, our power center as the educating learner in the room, it stems on who you are, who your belief system. If you don't, if I don't believe Steve can compare and contrast effectively, I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to give you the lowest level of content within which to do that. Or when you attempt to do it, and I see that you might be needing to think about it, I'm going to step in and do it for you because I inherently don't believe you can do it. And so then we say, okay, we're going we're gonna to change the text. We're going to lower the lexile level of the test. We're going to change this. We're going to change the language. But yet we test kids at what level? Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, there's I mean, there's <laughs> there's so much to say there. I think I think the way that I will kind of try to wrap that up and I don't know how successful I'm going to be is I guess if you truly understand yourself as an educator and you've taken the time and there's been the training that has been provided. And I think you mentioned this somewhere. There are moments when you shut your door in your classroom and you have an incredible amount of power and that power doesn't come with the prescribed curriculum. It comes with what you're talking about, which which is sitting back, observing what's going on and making decisions based on what you see in front of you. And of course the data and everything else is extremely important, but I feel like that is such an important aspect of that instructional power that teachers have, even if they're kind of slaves to a curriculum that they 
don't necessarily believe in. Let me tell you something. It does not matter what curriculum you have, whether you have unfettered curricular autonomy or you have restrict, highly restrictive curricular expectations or somewhere on that trajectory. You have power and teachers exercise it at every moment. Teachers make 1,500 decisions a day. That's a lot of decision-making power. Yep. And so, you know, and, I, and I will say a shameless plug, working on a book now, um, let's do out in the fall on this very topic of instructional power. And um, it's really important that teachers, one, don't believe they've got it. And so they're out there in the world using it <laughs> to the detriment yep. to a lot of kids because they won't tap in. Um, pe- teachers exercise their power all the time. There's no way that you have that much decision-making um, ability and it not be a, a source of power infusement. Right. It just happens. Power is everywhere. You know, Freire said, I think it was uh, Paolo Freire, Freire who said to, to, uh, to act as though the idea of power that operates in society doesn't operate in the classroom is to be ignorant of how power actually works, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if it's operating in society, it's operating in classrooms as well. And so that scaffolding, the amount of scaffolding really is connected to what you believe about the kids in front of you. I was doing um, a, a training session with a bunch of uh, district leaders, a group of district leaders. It was a district that I worked for, worked in, and they had a separate district pulled out to really focus on their highest need kids. And my, my partner at the time and I had crafted this whole you know, workshop and we put this great, um, this great exercise up. We put the exercise up, the district leaders read it. The first thing, there had to be about five principles in the room. First thing out of every one of those principles mouths is, our kids can't do that. Mm. principles and 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 the and the exercise the task we developed was straight out of the standards you yeah. could track yeah. you could track the language in the task linear, linearly to the standards we had the standard names everything and the first word out of their mouths were our kids can't do that yeah. And so, I mean, we come back to those, <laughs> those hard questions that I asked earlier. I mean, and, and it's in the data and it's also in those responses as well. Um, well, a lot, lot, lot to think about here in process. Um, and I certainly hope that anybody who's listening got as much out of this conversation that I did. I, we have to wrap it up and I think we're going to have to schedule me. I'm putting you on the spot, maybe a part two sometime. <laughs> I would love a part there's, two. <laughs> there's Absolutely so much. would. Absolutely would. But in the meantime, you talked about a book you're putting out. There's so much other stuff. The YouTube video is really short and easy to watch and awesome. And I'll link to it. But how, what are some other ways that people can learn more about the work you're doing? Um, I'm on Twitter at remarsh, R-E-M-A-R-S-H 76. I'm there. Um, I have got articles in places. I've read, um, I've been in, um, gosh, where have I been? Lots of places um, on podcasts such as this. I've been on panels. I'm going to be at South by Southwest coming up uh, in another couple of weeks. Got a couple of keynotes coming up. So I've been around doing a lot of different things. I have the privilege of working with states and districts and other organizations across the country, really focusing on curriculum development and curriculum revision to really evidence this kind of work that we're talking about here. And so uh, I had an article about correction. It's called Correction to Correct or Not Correct in the English Journal a couple of years back. There is a handbook on teachers of color that's due out sometime this year. Um, I have a chapter in that. I have a chapter in a book about teacher bullying. And so there's a real big topic of mine thinking about that. And so lots of places. A lot. And as evidenced by what you just said, you're not only researching the stuff, but you're actually doing out there doing the work and trying to make change, which I think is really wonderful. Um, last question. This is a question we ask everyone. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a book or a film or any other resource that's had a really important influence on you, either personally or professionally? Mm-hmm. 
when I was doing my master's work, I had a great professor at UNCC. His name was Cy Knobloch. He changed my whole life on education. And he introduced me to uh, Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was life-changing for me. And since then, I have been on a trajectory since then. Um, Asa Hilliard's book, The Maroon Within Us, has been another, an older book, uh, Asa Hilliard has since passed away, another book that one of my other professors kind of helped me dig into and really understand. In modern times, I've been, I read through um, Heather Williams' book, Self-Taught, which mm -hmm. was like, right? And um, now I'm reading Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed reading that book, also reading uh, Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan's book, Street Data, which have been really helping me crystallize a lot of what I instinctively knew, yeah. and experientially yeah. knew, was giving me some better, deeper language. And I'm also um, just trying to read Ivory Tolson's book on BS, um, how statistics has been really shaping our understanding on black stats and statistics. And so just really thinking about a lot of different ways to incorporate the, put the language around what I've been experiencing when I was in classrooms and working with people across the country. And those are the books right now. And every single word out of the mouth of Alfred Tatum yeah. is like, go, like, you just need to like, Play, pause, write. <laughs> Play, pause, write. He has just been so prolific on pushing our understanding of advanced literacies, pushing the notion that there basically is no such thing as culturally responsive text. And every single text belongs to every single kid. Like all texts belong to all kids. And you have to decide how to help students understand that, right? He talks about um, things like rocks. If we're gonna talk about rocks, so we tend to think rocks only belong to kids who live in the suburbs. Well, kids who live in, in the city have rocks too. We just got different ones, right? And how to help kids really understand the, the intersection, the relationships. How do we use disciplinary literacy as a tool for advancing advanced literacies? Um, so that's kind of where my head has been on these topics. Well, I don't know how you do everything that you do and continue <laughs> to read everything that you read, but I'm glad that you do because it's, um, it's really inspirational stuff. And, um, again, I'll go back to the beginning. I want to thank again, Jeff Swears for introducing us. And I thank you mostly, uh, Tangie for taking the time to chat with us. This was really robust and, and a, a longer conversation than usual, but there was no, uh, second of this conversation that I think, um, was wasted. So, Really appreciate the time. Really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, and thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to coming back again. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.